our brothers and sisters about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you were doing. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you very much for that uh, welcome. It really is uh, great to see you uh, this morning. A real uh, privilege and pleasure to be here for Unstoppable Number 6. Trust you've been enjoying the series. And uh, today we're looking at the subject of unstoppable justice. And in some ways today, uh, we are taking off from where we were last week, from the previous passages. Andrew took us through looking at the, the coming of the Lord Jesus, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But the emphasis is slightly different today. Rather than focusing initially at least on Jesus returning as Savior, today we're focusing on Jesus returning as Judge. On the uh, 31st of August 2013, um, uh, Becky and I got married. Um, on the very next day, the 1st of September 2013, uh, Becky moved into my little two-bed flat in Peterborough. And so began her project of not only uh, refining her rather uncouth husband, uh, but also of transforming this uh, grotty little bachelor pad into an altogether much more uh, welcoming living space. Uh, and so in came some nice fluffy towels, which would be kept on hooks to replace the uh, coarse grey wet ones that I used to keep on the floor. Um, <laughs> In came some nice new uh, dishes and plates and knives and forks and so on to replace the old ones that uh, my friend Steve had given me when he got married and his wife Natalie made him throw those out. Uh, the, the bowls that I used to fill with useful things like uh, dead batteries and uh, soup buttons and things like that uh, were instead filled with uh, potpourri. Uh, so many things were transformed. Uh, there were new furniture, there was new fragrances, and there were new rules. Uh, and <laughs> I heard someone say once, how come God got away with ten commandments? Well, my wife needs a thousand for my house alone. But anyway. <clears throat> now, lest you think I am complaining, I'm not. Actually, I really appreciated these changes. Uh, and just within weeks, I got to really enjoy coming back home to the flat. Uh, I found it to be, you know, it, it seemed nicer, it looked nicer, it felt nicer, and I'm rather ashamed to say that it, it smelt nicer. Um, <laughs> and then a few weeks later, 
Uh, Becky, who was at the time studying for her doctorate in psychology, Becky, by the way, is, is now Dr. Becky, I suppose I should be um, uh, referring to her in that way, and uh, uh, she was studying for her doctorate at that particular time, so she uh, went away for a three-day block of teaching at university. It was the first time we'd been away from each other in our married life, and the first time Becky had been away from the flat. And the question is, how do I live in the flat knowing that Becky is away? Uh, do I go back to my old ways, uh, towels on the floor, pizza boxes in the sink and all that kind of stuff? Or do I honour the new life that she's given me? Uh, and of course, you'll all know that I'm a really good boy, so I was going to opt for the latter. And there are many motivations for that. You know, I love Becky, I appreciate the new life that she's given me. There's no getting away from it. One of my motivations was this. Over those three days, though I knew Becky was away from me bodily, I knew that one day she would return in judgment. <laughs> and that really is what today is all about. It's not Becky who's returning, but it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Apostle Paul refers here in this passage to the day of the Lord. When he does that, it's significant. He's talking about the same day, the second coming. But by using the term the day of the Lord, he's invoking lots of Old Testament passages which talk about the Lord bringing judgment. So when he talks about the second coming as the day of the Lord, he's talking about it as the ultimate day when Jesus returns in judgment. And so what we want to learn is from this passage, how can we be ready for the day of the Lord? And so I've got a couple of questions to help us get ready. And the first one is this, what will happen on the day of the Lord? Once we've looked at that, we'll look at how we can be prepared. But the first question is this, what will happen on the day of the Lord? And the first thing to say is this, on the day of the Lord, Jesus will return suddenly. The Apostle Paul says in verse 1 and 2 of this, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. In other words, he's not going to tell us when the day of the Lord will be, when Jesus will return. Why? Because he doesn't know. Nobody does. What will happen? The Lord will return at a time nobody knows. It will happen suddenly. And to show us this, the Apostle Paul then gives us a couple of very evocative images. The Apostle Paul is always somebody who uh, will never use one picture when two or three will do instead. So he gives us a couple of pictures to show us that the day of the Lord will come suddenly. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. One of the most inconvenient things about thieves is they don't tell you when they're coming. It'd be nice, wouldn't it, if you moved into a neighbourhood and you got one of those little leaflets through the door just saying, yoo-hoo, stranger in town, just letting you know we are the thieves, we will be round 22nd of September, 2am in the morning to break through your uh, back window and relieve you of your personal effects. You know, hope you're settling in okay. If they did that, life would be a little easier. If they didn't come at all, that would be nicer, but you get what I mean. So what's his point here? Well, thieves don't do that. No, no, they come upon you suddenly and unexpectedly. In other words, you're not going to be prepared. And that's what he's saying with the day of the Lord. I can't tell you when. All I can tell you is that it will be sudden and it will be unexpected. And then he uses a second image. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Uh, many of you know that uh, Becky and I had our second baby boy, uh, little Isaac, uh, was born just three months ago. And actually, uh, when it came to the time when we were uh, approaching the due date, and we started thinking, we, we, we're getting ready now, you know, he's, he's, he's nearly with us. Because it had been a couple of years since we'd had Jack, we kind of forgot when you need to go to the hospital. 
And so we had a couple of false starts. We ended up going to the hospital and actually getting sent home. They'd say, no, you're not quite ready yet. Uh, Labour has not quite started. So, you know, go home, drive over some speed bumps, you know, do some walks, uh, have a curry in a hot bath, all that kind of stuff. Becky said, Tom, I don't think you have to do that one. I said, uh, you just shut the door, please. Anyway. And so we had a couple of these false starts, but then on our third trip to the hospital, we thought, no, 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 this is it, okay? The labour pains have begun. Now, I wasn't experiencing the labour pains, but even I knew the labour pains had begun. Uh, once my constant stream of joking was being met with less and less goodwill, I, think, I thought, hang on, these are the labour pains. And I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> it's advice for anybody. But what's the point? The point is, once the labour pains have begun, labour is inevitable. It's inescapable. From that point onwards, labour is going to happen. That is the general rule the Apostle Paul is talking about here. There's no hot baths needed, no curries, no walking around the block or any of that stuff. It's begun. It's inescapable. So what he's saying is the day of the Lord is like that. Jesus will return suddenly and unexpectedly. And the day of the Lord will commence suddenly, and once it starts, it will be inevitable. It will be inescapable. So what he's saying is this. It could happen at any moment. Jesus could return, and the judgment could begin in half an hour's time, or next week, or in a year's time. The point is, it'll be sudden and unexpected, sudden and inescapable. Now, I know full well that when we talk about judgment, this is not necessarily the most uh, popular or palatable uh, part of our faith. I understand that. One of the reasons I know that is because I'm preaching on it, and they always give me the tough ones. Have you noticed that, or is that maybe that's persecution complex? I don't know, but anyway. But I understand that. I understand if you were to go down to the marketplace and play a word association game with people and say, judgment, what comes to your head? Positive, negative? Most people would say negative. But if... Jesus is a judge, and God is going to judge us. Surely it can't actually be a negative thing. It must, if God is a good God, or since God is a good God, be a positive thing. So how can we turn this around? How can we actually see that the judgment is a positive thing? Well, I believe there's another word, which if we played that same word association game, we would all tick the positive box, and that word is justice. And I think we have to see the connection between judgment and justice to see that actually judgment is a positive thing. Because after all, if you take judgment out of the picture, if you take God out of the picture and just say life is just what it is as we know it, there is no God, no heaven above us, uh, you know, when you get to the end of your life, that's it, everything is done, then ultimately we do not live in a just universe. Occasionally, justice makes some cameo appearances. People get caught for doing the wrong thing and punished for it. But it's not ultimately a just universe. Justice is thwarted all the time. And let's be honest, we've had a a rough few months in the news, haven't we? And we've constantly seen injustice after injustice. And some of those things are never going to be put right. And we're just left with that if God is not in the picture. But if we put God back into that picture, if there is a judgment at the end of the age then it means this. Even if justice can be thwarted in this lifetime, it's only thwarted temporarily. One day, because of the judgment, justice will be restored. Justice will be restored. Supreme Court Justice Horace Gray was once stood in front of a man who had committed a crime and he was guilty, and everybody knew he was guilty. But he was not going to get done for this crime because ultimately uh, he was going to get off on a, a legal loophole. 
And as Justice Horace Gray spoke to this man, knowing that he was going to go free, he said to him, look, I know you're guilty and you know you're guilty. But I want you to remember that one day you will stand in front of a judge far better and far wiser than I am. And on that day, you will be judged according to justice and not according to the law. In other words, when Jesus comes back and everybody faces Jesus in judgment, there will be no legal loopholes on that day. There will be none of these cases where people do these atrocious things and we only find out of them after death. You know, those things will be put right. There will be no um, celebrities who think they can do whatever they want and get off because of, uh, of, of expensive lawyers. All those things will be put right because one day justice will be done. Justice is unstoppable. This is cause for celebration. We ought to rejoice. Whenever we see injustice happening in this world, we can think to ourselves, yes, but one day that will be put right. And what about the flip side of that? Not so much when we see justice thwarted, but when we see somebody wrongly convicted of something they haven't done. When they've done the right thing, but they end up on the wrong side of the law. As Christians, we ought to be very passionate about this. Because this has happened to Christians all throughout history, and it's happening this very day. Christians are often found guilty of the crime of simply being a Christian. As we know, we see it in the news. There are people actually killed simply for the crime of being a Christian happening on our planet today. There are people who are thrown in prison just for being Christian. They're doing the right thing, but they're ending up on the wrong side of justice. Now, those things might not be happening in our country, but I trust you've found, as I have, that simply for being a Christian, you can be found um, guilty in the court of human opinion. Yeah? And yet on that day, all those people who've been wrongly convicted, whether in the court of human opinion or a real court or simply some uh, crazy court of these mad people with a mad ideology, ideology which will literally just cut people's head off simply for being Christians, all of that will one day be put right. All of those who've been vilified will one day be vindicated. So because there is a judgment, one day justice will be done. Justice is unstoppable. And we all love justice, don't we? Or do we? Because <laughs> there are times when we're not so keen on justice. Now, many times in watching football, I've come across uh, something like the following. A striker bursts into the opposition's box. He gets brought down by a defender. Uh, it's a clear foul. Everyone can see it. The crowd can see it. The goalkeeper can see it. The defender knows it. The striker knows it. The manager knows it. Everybody sees it except one person. Who's that person? The referee. <laughs> and so he blows his whistle and he says, no penalty, goal kick. Okay? What does the striker say in the premiership? Well, we all know. He says, fair enough, ref, we all make mistakes. And it, no. Okay. <laughs> he gets up, he's screaming in the ref's place, what are you doing? You know, everybody can see this. Are you a blind ref? What's going on? And then after the match, he's given interviews and the manager's given, this is a miscarriage of justice, this is a disgrace. What are they? They're justice warriors. They just want to see justice done. Ten minutes before, that same striker did a two-footed lunge on somebody. Could have ended their career. And the ref comes up to them, fishing in his pocket for a card. What does the striker say? Please, ref, I want to see justice done. Give me a red card and perhaps a 12-month ban. No. <laughs> Then they're like this, come on ref, it was my first, I didn't mean to do it. Then they want mercy. They don't want justice, they just want justice when it suits them. And look, I'm not having a go at Aguero or whoever that was. <laughs> I 
that wasn't in the notes. It's just this, it's, Manchester City references are unstoppable. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I'm just like that. You know, I love the idea of justice when it's pointed that way. <laughs> when it's, I see terrible injustice in the world and I think, yeah, I want to see judgment because I want to see uh, justice done. But when justice is turned around on me, and when I think to myself, actually, do you know what, one day I am going to be stood before a righteous God and he is going to judge me and everything that I've ever done wrong, everything that I should have done right but didn't, everything I've ever said, everything that I've ever fantasized about is going to be laid bare before him, I start to get a little bit less keen on the idea of justice. And yet, I'm not here to preach a message of doomsaying here today. I'm not here to say, let me tell you about the bad news of Christianity. You know, we've all done wrong and we're all going to be judged for it. Why not? Why am I so happy? Why am I not actually fearing the day of the Lord? Why am I feeling bold knowing that judgment is coming? Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And we see this at the end of the passage. Verse 9 and 10 says this, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. That is, the wrath of God, the righteous anger of God for what we've done, which would be pointed on it, to us on that particular day, we've not been appointed to suffer that wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that we may live together with him. So why am I not concerned about the bad news that I'm one, going to face, one day going to face judgment? Well, quite simply, because of the good news. Because Jesus Christ came and he died for me. So I will not receive condemnation through judgment. I will receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. But how can this possibly be? Why am I so confident about this? I've still done wrong things. I still will do wrong things, however much I try. Why can I still be confident knowing, as scripture says, that one day Jesus will come back to judge um, a few months ago, uh, I went to uh, town to do a little bit of shopping, and I, I went to park up in a pay-and-display car park. And as I'm sure you know, with a pay-and-display car park, exactly as it sounds, uh, you pay for your ticket and you display your ticket on the dashboard to say that you're going to park there for however many hours there are to come. But on that day, I didn't buy a ticket. I just drove into the uh, car park and I didn't go to the machine to buy one. And I just nonchalantly walked off into town. And on my way, I saw the uh, car park attendant coming past me to go and check all the cars. And I simply tipped my hat to him very confidently and carried on walking by and into town. Why, I hear you cry, were you so confident, Tom, when you hadn't purchased a ticket for yourself? Why, knowing that that same uh, car park attendant is going to get to your car, and if he's a righteous car park attendant, which apparently they all are, he is going to judge your car... And he's going to say, the price has not been paid, therefore this car is going to be punished. Given that's going to happen, why was I so confident? I'll tell you why. There's a part of the story I missed out. And that was this. When I went into the uh, car park, there was somebody coming out of the car park at the same time. And they put down their window and they said, hi mate, do you want this? And they handed me their car parking ticket. And they paid up for the rest of the day. And basically, obviously, what they'd done is gone into town, paid for more than they needed. Uh, it'd, been to, uh, it'd been a much shorter shopping journey than they were expecting. And so they were just handing their ticket to me. So I said, thank you very much. I took their ticket from them, and I displayed it on my dashboard for all to see. 
Why was I so confident then when the judgment came on my car? Not because I paid the price, but because somebody who'd gone before me had already paid the price. And what's more, displayed on my dashboard was a ticket saying, paid in full. So that when judgment came on my car, that person would say, that traffic warden would say, justice has been done here. The price has been paid. Although the price has not been paid by this person, it's been paid by somebody who came before. So what did I do? I went around town confident, even though the judgment had not yet taken place, confident that when the judgment did take place, I would be okay. I'd be covered. I'd be vindicated. And it's exactly the same for me as a Christian. Yes, I have done things wrong. And yes, according to justice, a price has, has to be paid. But here's the good news. The price has already been paid by another, by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. When I repented of my sins and put my faith in him, on the cross, he took the punishment for all of my sins upon himself. The price was paid in full. And when God looks on that day, on the day of the Lord, through the windscreen of my life, he looks at a ticket over my life. And my life is covered. It says what? It says paid in full. Not guilty. Move on to another car. I've not only received forgiveness, I've also been declared to be in the right. So yes, there will be judgment. Yes, there will be the day of the Lord. But because of what Jesus has done, I have been declared in the right. I've been forgiven and be declared to be just already, way ahead of time. This is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And anybody in this room who has not yet availed themselves of that good news, it's as though the Lord Jesus is putting his windscreen down and saying, do you want my ticket, mate? I've already paid the price for you. Just reach out and take that ticket. Avail yourself of his forgiveness, of his righteous account. And you will then have confidence to know when that day comes, you will stand the judgment. You can look forward to that day with boldness and not with fear. As Andrew said last week, when it comes to anybody who we know who has already died in Christ, when they are raised on that day, their verdict is already in. They've already been declared just. And so they had nothing to fear when they die. Anybody who did not know Jesus up to that point, again, as Andrew said last week, let's not second guess the Lord, let's not give glib answers on that. We never know what went through people's minds in those final moments. But what we do know is for anyone living right now who does not know the Lord, we don't want to take that chance. Reach out and grab that ticket. Avail yourself of the forgiveness and the righteous account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why the Apostle Paul can go on to say this in verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that day should surprise you like a thief. In other words, the day will still come, but it shouldn't surprise you. Why not? Because the verdict's already in. If you've become a Christian, you've already been declared not guilty. You can go about your shopping knowing that when the traffic warden comes, you will be declared not guilty. And so it's altogether different for those who are in Christ. And the Apostle Paul uses this image to talk about those who are in Christ. They are people of the day, people of the light. We have moved from the darkness to light. He says this, you're not in darkness so that the day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night and to the darkness. 
Uh, my dad used to tell me, Tom, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who've read The Lord of the Rings and those who haven't. Um, well, the Apostle Paul similarly, no offence, Dad, but quite a lot more helpfully, says there are two different types of people in this world, those who are people of the day and those who are people of the night. When you become a Christian, you pass over from the night into the day. And when you're a day person, you have nothing to fear of the day of the Lord. And so the question is, if we've got total security, how should we prepare for the day of the Lord? And so that's our second question. How should we prepare for the day of the Lord? So we have total security. We await that day with boldness. We have nothing to fear, but nevertheless, we still need to get ready. We still need to be prepared. And I've got three things by way of application that we can do to prepare. And the first one is this, be aware. Can we say that together? Be aware. We need to be aware that the Lord is coming back, aware of what he has saved us from. And many people might be looking at this and thinking, but as a point of application, as the first point here, isn't being aware, isn't that a little bit passive, what we just got to know? But actually, this is very important. You see, this whole issue of the second coming, this whole issue of uh, the end times and the new age coming in can be very polarizing. You can find that there are some people you can never get into the subject. There are some people you can never get out of the subject. You find there are some people who are oblivious, some people who are obsessed. Well, we don't want to be oblivious. We don't want to be obsessed. We do want to be aware. And not just aware of it as a theory, but as a truth to be lived out. See, part of what made the early church so unstoppable, this isn't the only thing, but it's certainly a very important thing, was they seemed to have in mind that the Lord could come back at any point imminently. And that helped them so much. That's why they could have this just incredible, expansive growth all over the known world, despite the fact that they were being persecuted and attacked from all sides. Because at any one moment, as far as they were concerned, the Lord could come back and issue in this new age. And I believe, as it's 2,000 years later, and the Lord still hasn't returned, we've lost something of the sense of this imminent return of Jesus. And I believe we need to do something to regather that, to recapture it. When I think about this, when I go about my day and think at any one point the Lord could return, this is something that spurs me on. It's been used in the past as a scare tactic. Well, I don't want it as a scare tactic that the Lord could come back at any point, but I do want it as a spur tactic that it could spur us on. You see, when you think at any one moment Jesus come back, Jesus could come back right now. I'm not saying the first place Jesus will come when he returns is Peterborough, but let's assume at some point he comes back here. Just imagine the Lord Jesus Christ being among us. Just imagine we get to see him. When I start thinking about that, I just start getting so excited. I'm so moved at those points in scriptures when Jesus died and was raised again, and then the apostles get to see him. There's a beautiful moment when uh, the men and Peter are fishing, and they see this enigmatic stranger somewhere on the shore, and then John realizes it's Jesus, and he says it's the Lord. And good old Peter, you know, always puts two feet first, Peter, is in the boat. When he realizes it's the Lord, he goes, it's the Lord. And he jumps in two feet first into the, into the water to go out and greet him. Why? Because he's been away from him and now he's back. How exciting is it going to be? Let's regather some of that. Let's be aware that at any one moment, the Lord Jesus could come back and let's have that spare us on. Second point of application is this, be awake. Can we say that together? Be awake. 
So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Again, he's using this image of night people and day people. And he's saying we're day people. What do day people do during the day? They get out of bed. They wake up. They get on with things. Um, just this week, I was ill. Um, it was horrible. And I had to spend some, particularly on Wednesday, spend most of the day in bed. And I was reminded again just how horrible it is, how unnatural it feels to lie around in bed when it's the daytime and things are going on outside and you want to uh, get up, get out there and get on with things. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying to us. He's saying, you're not a night person that needs to uh, fear the day of the Lord. You're a day person. You've been saved from all that. Therefore, get up, be awake, stay alert, be sober-minded, uh, get out and do things. Stop, if I can put it this way, sleeping, stop spiritually dozing. What happens when we start dozing? Well, in, in the real world, we become static. We start to be unconcerned about things. It's exactly the same thing spiritually. When you start spiritually dozing, you become completely unconcerned about your surroundings, completely unconcerned about the daytime activities that you need to be going on with, completely unconcerned with your Christian growth, for example. As an example, I remember speaking to someone once who was complaining about their marriage. I said to them, have you read this particular book on marriage? They said, no. I said, okay, have you read this one? They said, no. I said, have you read any books on marriage? They said, no. I thought, fair enough, not everybody likes reading. I said, what about a teaching series? Which teaching series have you been looking into? They said, I haven't looked into any. I said, okay, have you been to any conferences or anything like that? I said, no. I said, have you asked advice from anybody? They said, no. I'm not having a go at that person. I'm the same on many different things. But what I'm saying is this. They need to wake up. They are dozing spiritually. They're a day person. They're a Christian. Every facet of their Christian life, whether uh, marriage, their spiritual walk, their fight against sin, all of it, all of it, we need to be alert and awake for. We need to be progressing. You heard that, that thing of the shark? Uh, apparently the shark needs to keep swimming forward or it dies. We're like that as Christians. We need to always be moving forward, always be alert, always be waking up, not spiritually dozing. And I encourage all of you, if you've fallen asleep in any area of your spiritual life, this is a wake-up call. Let's be awake. One day the Lord is coming back and it could be any day. Let's be alert. Let's be sober-minded. Let's be awake. And the final thing is this. Be aware, be awake, and finally, be armed be armed. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this verse here. Put on faith and love as a breastplate. And the breastplate, a piece of armor that goes across your chest. What's he saying? He's saying your faith in Christ your love of Jesus, your love of other people, it's not just something to be done. It's actually armor that protects you. It's a breastplate that covers your heart. Uh, there's a, a famous film, a uh, spaghetti western, uh, uh, and there's a famous scene in this film. Uh, it's called A Fistful of Dollars. Uh, some of you may have seen it. There's a, a famous uh, scene at the end where Clint Eastwood, the star of the film, 
uh, is standing. You've probably seen these kind of scenes before. It's a western. They've got these wooden um, buildings each side. Uh, there's gunfight about to start, so everyone has gone inside and put the hatches down and all that kind of stuff. And Clint Eastwood is standing at the end of the street, looking very much like Clint Eastwood. Uh, he's annoyingly called the man with no name in these films, so I'll just call him Clint Eastwood. Um, and he's wearing jeans, he's got his boots on, and he's got a big poncho on. And he's being stood down by these five evil brothers who've been um, basically going into the town and running riot in that town. And one of the brothers, uh, Ramon, has actually got his rifle fixed on Clint Eastwood. And it's a very tense scene. It's all quiet. You know, we've got the kind of tumbleweed and the wind blowing. And I don't know if it goes, da-na-na-na-na. That might be another one. But anyway, it's that kind of scene. And we can see Ramon with his rifle fixed on Clint Eastwood. And he pulls the trigger and he shoots him, bam, in the chest. And Clint Eastwood falls back. And then the camera pans onto each of the eyes of these brothers. And we start to see their eyes go from looking victorious to all of a sudden start to look bewildered. And then the camera goes back to Clint Eastwood as what happens? starts to get back up to his feet. Just been shot clean in the chest with a rifle, but he's getting back up. Starts to walk towards the guy. So the guy takes another shot. And again, he stumbles back, but then starts walking towards him again. So the guy takes another shot. And again, the same thing happens. And then Clint starts goading him. Starts saying, aim for the heart, my man. I know, uncanny, wasn't it? And he takes another shot, and then another shot, and he keeps coming back. We start to think, this guy's unstoppable. And then what happens? Clint gets closer and closer. He keeps taking shots, keeps aiming for the heart. And then when the guy's finished with all his shooting, Clint comes up, he pulls back his poncho. And what's he wearing? He's wearing an iron breastplate. It's covering his heart. I know what you're thinking. Why didn't he take a headshot? I don't know, but anyway... Now, what's the point? The point isn't that the bullets weren't real. They were real, okay? If we imagine, if we suspend our disbelief and remember it's a movie. Or it's Clint Eastwood, maybe they were real, you know. But anyway, the bullets were real. They were dangerous. They were aimed at his heart. The reason he was unstoppable is not because the bullets weren't real. The reason he was unstoppable is because he was wearing a breastplate covering his heart. And what did that mean? It meant despite the fact that all these bullets were being aimed at him, it meant he was unstoppable. And you know what? It's the same for us as Christians. We face real bullets. Okay, not real bullets, but you know what I mean. The bullets of the enemy. I wish, whatever you're going through right now, I wish I was able to tell you that by becoming a Christian, those things that you're facing will just disappear, but I can't. Those bullets will still be aimed at your heart, the wellspring of your life. And they will keep coming, and they will keep coming. I trust that God will take you out of the firing line at times, but there will be times when you just have to face it. How do you stay unstoppable then? Not by avoiding the bullets, but by arming yourself. You don't need to go around wearing an iron plate underneath your poncho. You don't even need a poncho. What you need is you need to arm yourself cover yourself with faith and love and then you'll be unstoppable so yes you know what the verdict is going to be essentially because of what Jesus has done we've won the war but there's still a battle and there's still real bullets flying around and therefore you need to be armed you need to arm yourself with faith and love and you know what even if the enemy does take a headshot you're all right because unlike Clint you've got a helmet on it says here 
and the hope of salvation as a helmet. What covers your head is salvation, knowing that you have been saved, knowing that Jesus paid the price. That means whatever the enemy says to you, whatever he does to try and get into your mind, however much he tells you you've messed up, you're a sinner, you've gone too far, you can simply respond by saying, no, 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 I'm wearing the helmet of salvation. Nothing you say can get to me. It was Martin Luther who said, when the devil said to him, Luther, you're a sinner, he said, fine, Christ died for sinners. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm wearing the helmet of salvation. So arm yourself with faith, hope, and love. And whatever happens, you will be unstoppable. How do we get this salvation? Again, we repent of our sins. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul finishes by saying this, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. In other words, you are behaving like this and continue it. And I want to say the same thing to you, Kingsgate. You are being encouraging to one another. Continue to be encouraging to one another. Put on that armor. Continue to grow as Christians. Continue to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And anybody here who's not yet become a Christian, I want to encourage you, arm yourself for life. Put on that helmet of salvation. I don't know if you noticed in one of the scriptures before, it talked about that final day and getting ready for that final day. It said it will happen while everybody is crying, peace and safety. That's not just something the Apostle Paul has made up. That peace and safety was actually a political slogan of the Roman Empire. If you thought political slogans began with strong and stable government, you were wrong. They've been around for thousands of years. And the Roman Empire would come into town and they say, right, there's a new king here, Caesar. And he comes and he brings peace and safety. And he really did. There was political peace and there was safety for all those who were citizens of the Roman Empire. How did they achieve that? Well, if anyone tried to upset that peace and safety, fine. You just nail them to a cross. And you let everybody see that this person who fought against the empire, this is what happens to them. And you do it in the public arena so everybody can see this is what happens to you if you mess with the Roman peace and safety. Peace and safety was achieved through the brutal work of crucifixion. But I want to tell you that peace and safety was nothing but a political peace and safety. It was not an everlasting peace and safety. There is only one king who will truly bring everlasting peace and everlasting safety. And that king is not Caesar or any modern-day king or Corbyn or May or certainly not Trump. It's not any of those people. It is King Jesus. And King Jesus comes and he brings everlasting peace and he brings everlasting safety. And how does he do it? He does it through the cross. But not by taking his enemies and brutally murdering them. No, but by loving his enemies and actually sacrificing himself on that very same cross in their place and saving them and achieving peace and safety for them. So let me finish by encouraging you that yes, one day the Lord will return in judgment, but he has already come and he has already paid the price of that justice, uh, that judgment himself, so that any single one of us who repents and puts our faith in Jesus. The verdict is already in and we have everlasting peace, everlasting safety. And we are, because of what he has done, we are unstoppable. Thank you.